Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, kids, we've got a wild one for you today. Buckle up. This episode is hilarious, candid, profane, meaningful, pretty much everything I like in life. Jonathan Van Ness is perhaps best known as one of the stars of Queer Eye on Netflix, which is a great show and he's great in it. Jonathan, or JVN, is a hairstylist by trade and also a comedian, podcaster, and writer. JVN is just out with a second book called Love That Story, a follow-up to the bestseller called Over the Top, in which JVN went uh, public on some extremely private issues, including being HIV+, surviving sexual abuse, and recovering from drug addiction. In this very wide-ranging conversation, we talk about shame, body dysmorphism, trauma, Jonathan's complex and contradictory feelings about shopping, and we spend quite a bit of time on the subject of hope. Hope is kind of a tricky topic for me because it's often discussed in rather gauzy and insubstantial terms, but JVN talks about it in a really raw and fascinating and practical way. I should say hope is actually the theme of this week, We're going to be following up on Wednesday with a researcher who has studied hope and has science-based suggestions for cultivating hope as a mental skill. This is week two of our Mental Health Reboot series that we've launched to mark Mental Health Awareness Month. Every week, we're pairing a mental health memoirist with a scientist. We've done sleep, This Week It's Hope, and we've got episodes coming up on loss slash grief and also on trauma or how to live with some of the worst stuff that's ever happened to you. So there are like 40 trigger warnings I need to issue before we dive in here. If you don't like swear words, you're going to struggle with this episode. If you don't like left-leaning politics, beware. If you don't think grieving over the loss of a cat counts as real grief, you might want to cover your ears. If you struggle with sexually explicit conversation, heads up on that. And on a much more serious note, this interview also includes very frank discussions of sexual abuse, substance abuse, and body dysmorphia, as mentioned earlier. If you want a cleaned up version of this episode with the swear words bleeped, you can check it out on our website or on the 10% Happier app. One last little bit of context here. You're going to hear Jonathan reference parts therapy or IFS or internal family systems. That's a flavor of therapy where the therapist gets the patient to identify different aspects or parts of their personality and work with those different inner characters. We've got a whole episode with the founder of IFS that we posted a few months ago. We'll post a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier.
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Jonathan Van Ness, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to have you. I'm a fan and really, I know that our listeners are going to love this. I thought I would start here because in your new book, you do express some concern about the fact that interviewers often come charging right in and ask you about the worst stuff that ever happened to you in your life. And I thought maybe it would make sense to start with setting some ground rules. Like, how do you feel about discussing this stuff? I don't want to commit the sins that others may have committed. Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't like... I don't think anyone else like really committed sins. It was just what I was really trying to get through in that chapter is that like I thought writing the book was going to be the hardest thing. But with practice comes more ability to like not become so attached to those experiences. So as Brene Brown says, you know, it's like, can you talk about your trauma without becoming your trauma? And I think at the time it was a lot harder for me to do that. And I think that with the practice I've had, I'm, I think I'm better now. So go for it, honey. <laughs> okay. I'm laughing only at the honey part of that and not at the trauma, of course. But I just want to be sensitive to not just come barreling in. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's start with your cat, actually, because I'm a cat lover and owner myself. We recently just lost a cat. I think people who are not into cats might not think losing a cat is that big of a deal. And yet you dedicate a lot of space in this new book to losing your cat. Can you talk about why that brought up so much for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was a really traumatizing experience, like waking up and not being able to find your one of your babies and then realizing that they fell to their death like out of a window is a very traumatizing experience, especially in the immediate aftermath, like guilt and shame, because like I opened the window thinking that he would never be able to fit out of it. And it was just like hot that night. You know, you think it would be okay, or I thought it would be okay. And 
I always find it kind of smug when people who are parents are like, oh, I thought I knew what love was, you know, when I had a dog or a cat. But once I had my baby, it was a different kind of love. And like, it, re- that's really when I knew it. I'm like, you smug asshole. Like, you're not fucking special for being like one of the billions of people who has brought a baby into the world. And whether you've like adopted the kid or birthed the kid or whatever, I just feel that it's possible to have that deep love and that deep connection with anyone who you're charged with protecting. And for me, it's been my cats and my dogs. And are they human? No, but I don't think that that invalidates or diminishes the connection. And actually, through Getting Curious, the TV show and the podcast, I got to interview this incredible philosopher. His name is Gabe Rosenberg, and he talks about how we live in a country that brings into the world and kills 10 billion sentient beings a year. So it's like we're really desensitized to the killing and the death that we're around, not only with animals, but with humans as well. So I think that for people who don't think it's a big deal, it's like we are desensitized to death. We're desensitized to loss because it's everywhere. One. Two, you know, for me, my animals are my children. They're my family. And yeah, I mean, that was... I think it was the most traumatizing thing that's ever happened to me. It forced me to like have to work through extreme grief, which is really difficult. And I think that that's something that's universal. Whoever you've lost, like having to work and like have expectations on you when you have been through something really traumatic is a really difficult experience. And there's no roadmap for that. And I was keen to kind of process that grief because it was so big for me when I wrote it. And I still can tap into that grief really easily because it was just a really difficult experience. There are a couple of things you said there that I want to pick up on. Well, one in particular that I'd like to follow up on is is you said that it might have been the most traumatizing thing that ever happened to you. And that's interesting given that you have written about sexual abuse, getting a devastating or at least jarring diagnosis of HIV positive. And yet the death of the cat maybe shook you more. You know, having my cat die like that is the most traumatizing thing that's ever happened to me. And I watched my stepdad like die in the living room and I'm HIV positive. Like, and it was the cat. And I think it's because with HIV, with the loss of my stepdad, I knew that those were possibilities because of things that were happening in my life. So like I had like a little bit of like anticipatory grief and like ability to like process it before it happened. Whereas with Bug the Second, there was like no reason for me to ever believe when I woke up that morning that like that's going to be what was going to happen. I just didn't know. And he was just such a sweet cat. He was like not even a year yet. And he and Larry, my oldest cat, were just like such a huge part of my life. And I was so nervous about Over the Top, which was like about to come out like a month later when the accident with Bug the Second happened. So I was already in a really vulnerable time. I never really worked that hard. I never had like so much pressure. And then to lose Bug the Second was just like, it was really acute pain that I had no way of knowing I was going to endure. And also I think that like, when you are really attached to your animals because people are assholes, that's the other thing. It's like there was so much people don't understand. And maybe if I was in a different time in my life, that wouldn't have been as traumatizing. But I do think that like becoming such a public facing figure, just being about to disclose my HIV status to the world while filming a show, which is a lot of hours and a lot of work, my window of tolerance was like not very big for like what I could tolerate. And then one of the worst things that could happen like to a family, like I lost someone in my family. It was like awful. So yeah. You've also written, and I'm going to quote you back to you, but that the death of Bug 
brought up, and this is the quote, brought up so much compounded shame and other losses in my life that I hadn't even realized that I was still internally processing. Yeah, because it's like, even Bug the Second was, Bug the Second and my other cat, Liza Meowneli, were like kind of knee-jerk reactions to my first cat, Bug the First passing away, but he had passed away at 12, and I talked about him in this chapter. That's how I got my like Charlotte's Web rule with cats. It's like if one cat passes away, I go get two, because it's like harder to like, be sad about the loss of one cat when you have like two more kittens to take care of. I think what I realized in this chapter is that I'm not a big fan of grief. Don't love sitting with it. You know, it's like, don't love to sit with it. Sitting with grief is hard. You talk about having a window of tolerance, which was a phrase that I believe one of your therapists gave to you. Yes. I just didn't have a very big window of tolerance. So really, I think because, you know, I adopted Bug the Second, I adopted Liza right after Bug the First passed away. And... When Bug the First died, it's like everything I went through when Bug the First was alive, like getting HIV, losing my stepdad, Steve, breaking up with that first partner that I was like so in love with, Sergey, that I talk about in both my books. I had gone through all of that with Bug the First. And so losing him, it was sad because it's like we just went through a lot of these things together. And I thought that a lot of those things was like, I just felt fully processed and complete on. And then when Bug the Second passed away, it kind of felt like it, opened that wound of the grief of Bug the First and everything that we had kind of been through together. And I think that that's one of the things about grieving that we learn is that processing grief and the grieving process is not linear. Like you can be in a place of acceptance for a long time about something and then something can happen in your life that can then again pull you right back to that shock, despair, you know, denial, bargain, all of those steps of grieving. And I think that's what I was trying to describe in that chapter. The Charlotte's Web rule is something that my wife and I have followed uh, in generally. We've ended up with a lot of cats through the Charlotte's Web rule, so I get it. Another thing you say in the book when talking about your difficulty, and I think this is a pretty common difficulty of not wanting to sit with grief, is realizing that grief is the flip side of love, that you can't have the grief without the love. Yeah, and so that's really the choice that we're left with. It's like, do you make yourself an island and not reach out for the connection and not experience that connection because inevitably we're going to lose it at some point? Or do you take that risk of the vulnerability and ask for the connection and build the connection knowing that you're going to lose it? And for me, I'm still very much in that latter camp of like, I'm going to take the chance because it's just, I feel like that's ultimately what we're here for. And it's like, there's so many kitty cat cooters, as I call it, that need homes. So like, I need to like, you know... But that is why I don't foster, because I do think that if I was a foster parent for kittens, and I'm sure that foster people are like, oh, no, it's not like that. You really, you love, like, adopting them out because then that means that, you know, you're making room for more. And it's like, no, I want 75 million cats. Because deep <laughs> down, like, I think I am a little bit of, like, a cat hoarder who wants to have enough space. Like, I don't want them to, like, want for, like, food. I don't want them to, like, eat each other. Like, be like that episode of Hoarders where the guy had the rats, but with cats. You know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> So I don't want that, like, anything bad to happen to them. But, like, if I could safely provide for, like, 75 million cats, I would. Like, I totally, if I could have a house that big and they could all have, like, their own space and we could, you know, have vet care and stuff and it was, like, clean. Ugh, I just love cats. I love them so much. I can't stand it. They're just so perfect in every way. I think we may have this in common, my friend. We've been talking about our relationship to others thus far in this brief discussion, but you also talk, I think, in a very compelling way about your relationship to yourself, specifically about shopping and also body issues. But let me start with shopping. 
Why is shopping and fashion couture such a fraught issue for you? Well, I think it's because when you become a public figure and you have like as much interactions with like folks on the internet and you just become aware of like so many people, like my world got a lot bigger in becoming JVN. I'm aware of so many more people. I'm aware of so many more things, issues, et cetera. And there is this really strong part within me that really wants to help people. So that's one part of me. And then there's this other part that like has always been really into chic, cute stuff that I couldn't afford because I was like a baby queer looking at these magazines and like, how am I going to afford the jeans that are like, those jeans are everything, that bag's everything, but these price tags are like, I'm never going to be able to afford this stuff. Like, so they're all things that I like wrote off as far as like being able to be someone who could afford cool stuff. And I just didn't even think it was that cool because I like wrote it off. When I started to make money, every like three to six months of me having since like Queer Eye happened and like having obviously the financial resources that have come with becoming like a public figure, it took me a year to realize that I could afford a house. It was like literally a whole year. I was like early 2019 and I was like, this means you could get a house. It literally didn't occur to me. Like cool purses did not, I was like, what? I can't, I can't, no. Like, like it just, it took me like a long time to figure out that like all of a sudden I had the ability to get stuff that like I previously had been like out of my reach. And then in parts therapy, we talk about like, you know, different parts of our personalities that can be polarized with each other. And I feel like on the one, like my helping part that wants to be like selfless and help people is like polarized with like my compulsive shopping part. And like they're kind of like in juxtaposition of each other's goals. Um, so it's like they cause me to get into a lot of rhetorical fireworks around questioning this compulsive need to get cute garments, even if I already have like other garments that are very similar. Like how many bags does one person need? Purses are my kryptonite. And it really does feel like drugs in some way because it's like you like, I won't, I'm not doing the math. I'm not doing it. Like, it's like, I'm not doing it. I'm fighting that craving. I'm not doing it. And then you do it. And then you're, it's like your guilt, the shame. Like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm not vibrating at the frequency that I know that I should be. Um, except for the biggest difference that, you know, purses aren't meth. And then that's what I tell myself. So I'm like, girl, <laughs> these purses aren't meth, honey. They're purses. And the people who are selling those purses need a job, not to mention it's art. Like, it's a literal art and science, like, being able to, like, weave and, like, sew and, like, cut. And it's art. <laughs> and it's supporting art, which is not meth. So, you know, it kind of is like that. I hope I'm not, like, spoiler alerting, like, making people, like, not want to read the chapter. Because there's actually a lot more to it. In that essay, it is, it's a racuous essay. A lot of fun. But, yeah, there is a lot of shame there. Because I just feel like, and also, like, capitalism. Like, that first part of me knows that wants to be a helper of people knows that capitalism is, like, unfair and a sham and is bullshit. But then that other part of me that really likes bags is like, but how are you going to get the Bottega if you don't do the capitalism? You know? <laughs> so they're just in constant fight with each other. How do you reconcile it? You mentioned parts therapy, which we've also talked on this show. I think it's sometimes called internal family systems where you... Yes, internal yes. family systems, IFS. I talk all about it and over the top. Yeah, so I think I reconcile it by, like, that there can be duality and there can be like two truths that exist simultaneously. I can help people and be really selfless with my time and my money, which I am a lot. And I can also be someone who like indulges in the purse. I can do both because like really I want to be like a super egalitarian, like 
Mary, Kate, and Ashley. You know what I mean? I want to be both. Like, super egalitarian, but then also super, like, I'm sorry, my sweater is, like, made of, like, alpaca hair that's, like, you know, the finest alpaca that's only ever had, like, organic grass. And hopefully alpacas don't die for the hair. But you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, it's just, like, you know, I want to be both. It's, like, we can be both and. We don't have to pick either or. So that's kind of how I reconcile it. I'll let you know as I mature if that changes. Because maybe when I get a little older, I'm going to be, like, really ashamed of this interview. And I'm going to be like, you know, I sold all my shit. I only have black t-shirt dresses now. And I, like, donated it all to folks in need, like, cats in need. So I'll let you know. It could happen. But it also might not happen. (laughs) You brought up shame there. Shame is a recurring theme for you. Can you say a little bit more about the role of shame in your life and, and how you work with it? The way it was explained to me is that shame is, like, the fear of, like, if people knew your true heart or, like, your true nature, like, they would no longer love you or, like, want to be your friend or, like, you know, or as I say in Over the Top, want that selfie or whatever. Because no matter who you are, we've all experienced rejection in some form. Even for the most, like, narcissistic person who really believed in their narcissism was like, I have never been rejected. Like, people, you know, I've never experienced trauma. Like, I've gotten everything I wanted. I made every team I ever wanted. Like, I just haven't experienced rejections. Because we know those people that, like, are so afraid of their own stuff that they, like, won't look at it, can't acknowledge it. Not that all of those people are narcissists, but, like, there are, like, traits in both of those types of people that can overlap. But even as, like, a baby, as a kid, we all experience rejection that you may not even remember. We have all been rejected. But the rejection and the pain that it causes, it's all relative. Some people's rejections don't cause such intense traumatic responses as other people's do. So that's okay. So all of our relationships with shame might be less clear or might be, like, less polarizing because, you know, maybe your trauma was more like some rolling gorgeous idyllic hills, whereas other people's trauma is like, you know, the Himalaya or the Rockies. You know, you had some peaks and valleys in there. So your relationship to shame is more intensely reoccurring. So that's, I think, what it is, is that a lot of the shame that we learn is when we're very young in our formative years of our, like, earliest psyche. So it's in there. And I think that for people who are survivors of big T trauma, as my therapist would say, or are from a marginalized community that would experience more shame than, say, like, a cishet white man. And not that cishet white men can't experience shame, because they do, and they do experience rejection. And I think that, actually, I think can be, their shame can be further intensified because of the toxic gender binary and the toxic masculinity and toxic masculinity that accompanies the expectations of this toxic gender binary that is so rigid in its expectations of men and women. So I'm not, like, dismissing the pain of cishet men or cishet women, but I will say cishet white women and cishet white men, rather. But if you are from a more marginalized community, you will probably experience more rejection, more trauma, thus have, like, more shame. Because this world wasn't wired or created for the acceptance and tolerance of queer people or Black people or brown people or disabled people or fat people, you know, or trans people. It's You know, this world was wired for the acceptance of white folks, white cishet Christian folks. That is how the society that we live in was wired. People are trying to change it, myself included, but it was still wired for white cishet Christian people. So... I think that for people that don't fall into that category, the experience of shame is going to be more reoccurring because we've had to deal with it more. So I think that's kind of 
why shame is such a reoccurring thing. And I see the ways that shame kills people who I love and kills people from my community. You know, shame is part of stigma and HIV. Shame is part of the stigma of transphobia because people are so ashamed that actually everyone is like a little baby bit gender nonconforming and trans. Like we all have a little bit of that in us, but people are so ashamed of what that might look like. You know, they acknowledge that. So shame kills people all the time and I don't like it. And I think that you can't heal what you keep hidden in shame. So I'm kind of interested in like bringing to light the things which bring us shame. And treating it, if I understand you correctly, treating it or relating to that shame with its opposite, which is love. Yeah, acceptance, compassion, curiosity, I think, is like a little bit of an antidote. Big fan of curiosity. It's fun because it's like, why do I feel like this? And then you can like get curious about it and try to contextualize and also not only contextualize, unblend or like pull apart from the shame because we are not our shame. We are like humans who are capable of so much love and so much compassion. We are such multi-layered, incredible vessels that we are not our shame. Like we are the observer of that shame. We are the observer of our feelings. And that's really what our highest self is. Like we are the observer of the happenings in our life. We are not what happens to us. You know, we are the observer of that. And I think creating that distinction is so healing. Much more with Jonathan Van Ness right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. People, in my experience, generally don't get perfect at this, but how good are you at bringing curiosity, compassion, love to your own stuff on a day-to-day basis? It depends on the week and the day, but I am pretty good at it. I mean, sometimes I totally get lost. I'll get caught up. I call it Vanessa. And usually that's because I'm triggered and I have a protector that's come out. You know, I'm feeling unsupported. I feel like I've been taken advantage of. And whether or not that's true... In a lot of cases, it is true that I haven't taken advantage of. But sometimes my boundary setting can become disproportionate to what happened because of that trauma and the shame. And I think that for a lot of us, especially that are survivors of abuse, setting a boundary was like not tolerated and like wasn't possible for so much of our life that then once you do start setting a boundary, it's like it just comes out like really intense when you really just, you know, could ask for what you needed up front, you know, but it's hard sometimes because learning how to like balance that is hard. But I, I get better at it all the time. Yeah, I can see how that would be a really tough balance because you're you're training a whole new muscle there. So one area that for people, and, and again, this is something we talk about on the show a lot, one area where a lot of people feel a lot of shame is as it relates to their bodies. And you talk about that quite a bit. Can you just give us a little history for you in terms of your relationship to your own body? How has that been and how is it now? Sure. It's been a long relationship with my body. I talk a lot about it in both of my books. It's so complicated because we all have bodies. We all have a relationship to our body. And we also all are exposed to the world, media, TV, everything, society, our friends, family. So we all have a completely different and unique relationship to our own body and to the world. So that's a lot of commonality for people to just even talk about. Because a lot of stuff, it's like, oh, I don't really like gardening. I don't care about purses. I don't care about cats. But it's like, we all care about our body. It's the one we got. And it's something that like unites all of us for all of our differences and all the things that make us different. We all got one because you're talking about it, right? So it's a big subject and it makes it very complicated because for all of the ways in which we're different, that factors into our relationship with our body. Gender, sexuality, race, class, age, it's going to affect everybody differently. So it's a very complicated topic where folks can go from like zero to 100 really quick. And also what can be a compliment for one person is really like backhanded and fucked up to another, which is so much of what I'm talking about in that essay about body neutrality. It's like, stop calling me brave, I'm hot. People are like, you're so confident, you're so brave, you know, you're such an inspiration. And it's like, why? Because you think that if you had a body like mine, you'd never be caught dead in a shirt like this. You'd never be caught dead in an outfit like this. How do you think that makes me feel? That that's what you're telling me. It's not a compliment. You think you're being nice, but you're actually being a fucking nightmare. Especially when someone in a public-facing space like me is hearing this and seeing it in comments like thousands of times, you know? So it actually, it's frustrating as a public figure, that aspect. And that's why I wrote this essay in the book, because it's just being labeled and like finding yourself a body positive 
in air quotes, icon. It's just like a lot of pressure for someone who's actually like, wait, I'm a hot mess. I'm maybe I'm that, but I'm also like all these other things. And like, it's a lot to process. So historically, my relationship with my body wasn't good. I struggled with binge eating. I struggled with body dysmorphia, bulimia, and it was difficult. And then that kind of evolved to like different versions of like restriction, working out, like compulsively working out, you know, and then just continued binge eating. So it's further complicated because like, I'm not healed. I'm not where I need to be. I still struggle. I still, with eating and binging, don't struggle with purging, which is fierce for me, but you know, whatever. It's like, people are still really struggling with it. People are also really triggered by just this conversation. But I also feel like back to that shame conversation, we can't heal what we don't talk about. So it is better. I am better, but I also am still really confused. I'm still learning more about fat phobia. I'm still learning about the intersections of fat phobia. But it's a conversation that I want to have. It's a conversation that affects my life and also the lives of a lot of people whom I love. And so it's a conversation I want to keep having around like body image and shame and what that means. But you struggle, it sounds, a little bit with having that conversation when you yourself don't feel fully healed. It's not that I struggle to have the conversation. I think that I more struggle to comprehend how daunting of a healing process it is for like everyone at large. But it's like, I still want to be a part of that conversation. And it's hard to know how to stay in your lane and like not fuck up when you don't know what you don't know. But I think that's what I also try to talk about that essay that it's like, I don't know what I don't know. And I try to be open about not knowing what I don't know. And so this isn't me preaching. This isn't me telling you how to do it. I'm telling you like what's happened with me. A few months ago, we had Jamila Jamil on the show, and she likes to talk about body neutrality instead of body positivity. And as I understand it, you share that view. Yeah, because it's like, really, we shouldn't be attaching our worth to the way that people look. And we need to like disentangle that, which they're, it's really enmeshed, the way that we equate value to the way that people look. It's interesting because I have done quite publicly here on the show quite a bit of work on rearranging and rethinking, reframing my relationship to my own body, especially as I get older. And I'm only now really seeing clearly the connection between how nasty I still can be to myself around like my abs or lack thereof now and how that really transforms into how judgmental I am of other people. The suffering I'm inflicting upon myself, like almost inevitably and inexorably becomes the suffering I inflict upon other people. Hopefully I don't say any of that aloud, but I just see it happening in my mind and that's bracing. I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Absolutely. And I think that's like such authentic communication that I think is so helpful. I think that, so thanks for sharing that. And it's great. It, it, it absolutely resonates with me. You know, that's a trauma response. What you just described is like, oh, I take out that trauma that I inflict upon myself, like on other people, like in terms of like, you know, say it out loud, but it's like I catch myself thinking it or whatever. For me, it's more of like, I would never talk about other people the way that my brain talks about myself. And I often like to joke that, you know, I've never met like a dick over the age of 25 that I couldn't find something that I was like, okay, like, I just am a little, like, I am just dick crazy. If you got one and you're, like, over the age of 25, like, I can find something. You know, as a sex worker, I was also, like, really starved for dick as, like, a teenager and, like, someone, you know, coming from a cornfield in the middle of America. So I think because I was so starved for dick and being able to, like, be open about my, like, love of it, that now, like, as in my adulthood, I'm just, like, I love dicks. You know, if you got one, 
let me see it. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, getting curious is, it, you know, uh, I love like adult dicks all the way up to like really adult dicks. If you're giving me principal vibes, like I'm curious. If you're giving me like, you know, I, I am like, it's like, even if you're like a grandpa honey, but you hit the gym honey, if you're like kind of one of those like saucy, like business suit wearing, like get over here, honey, let's talk about it. You know? So yeah. Like, I like all sorts of different types, honey. I, I just can find beauty, and, and I really do see beauty. And maybe it's also because I'm a hairdresser. We're, like, trained to see, like to find the beauty in people, you know? I'm going to make a conversational leap here, but hopefully it makes sense to you, because picking up on what you just said about finding the beauty, at least to me, a through line of your work appears to be, and I don't know how you feel about this word, but hope, because you have talked consistently about all of the difficult things you've endured in your life, and yet you're still in the mix and you get back up and keep going for it. So I'm wondering if that word is important to you, hope. So important to me not to be a buzzkill. I don't know if you can teach hope the way that I have hope, because I have like some blind faith, honey. Like I got some faith and it's I've seen it happen. Like, I don't know why. I have the faith because I've also seen it not happen. I've also been like sorely disappointed and then still can be like so hopeful for something. I think it's because I've seen sometimes when people are like, they would ask about like my career and like, how, like, did you ever think that this would happen? Like, did you ever think that this could happen to your life? And I would be like, no, I definitely never thought that I would be where I am. And I never would have thought that I would have done, accomplished what I've accomplished. But I also, never thought it couldn't happen. Like, I wasn't working and efforting to become, like, an unscripted reality star and, like, you know, well, actually, after Game of Thrones, I was. But before that, it's, like, one thing at a time kind of happened that led me to be able to, like, find where I am now. It was, like, one thing after another after another that eventually found me here. But I never thought that I couldn't heal or, like, recover from meth. I never thought that, like, I couldn't become who I am. So it's like, hope is a really big word because it can be small. Like it can be little in there somewhere. It doesn't have to like totally drive you. But if it's in there somewhere, you can always like come back to it and find it. And I don't think I ever really lost touch with my hope. I had brief moments of letting it go, but I always came back. And I think that's really important. You said earlier at the beginning of the answer that you're not sure it's teachable, but it, it may be something innate in you. But are there practices that you rely on to keep hope alive, to use a little bit of a cliche there? It's joy. It's really hard to be hopeful if you don't connect to your joy. And I think that even when I wasn't in a place of like recovery or even when I wasn't in a place of like necessarily like labeling it as a time of like healing, I've always been like very inclined to find something that makes me happy. Like whether it was yoga or like collecting rocks as a kid or becoming obsessed with figure skating as a kid. I've always had a part of me that like wanted to be oriented to like finding joy because I always knew that if I like found joy, it would like get me away from like an unsatisfactory experience that I was like in the middle of. And I've learned that from a really young age because I was very rejected as a young kid. I was very bullied. I was going through sexual abuse. I was like going through a lot of rejection everywhere I turned around. So I kind of like had to create a world of joy and hope that I could like connect to. If you don't know where your hope is and you're like in the throes of your darkness or your whatever you're going through, 
I think orienting yourself to like do something that will bring you joy, even if you don't end up experiencing joy, but even just like building upon like the act of seeking out the joy, even if you don't get it, I think that like is how you can like cultivate that pathway to joy in your brain by like embarking on it in the first place. That does seem like a practice anybody can do, no matter how much the situation in your life sucks, knowing that the capacity for joy, happiness, pleasure is still there and trying to exercise that muscle sounds like a way out of some pretty dark holes, potentially. Much more with Jonathan Van Ness right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. How well are you able to muster hope in the face of the problematic stuff going on in the world at large? Ask me after midterms. Right now, I'm still feeling hopeful. If we experience, like, a midterms of 2010 again, I might have to take all the queer youth and, like, kidnap them to, like, Canada or something. Like, I don't know what's going to... Like, I'm... I don't know. It seems a little... I'm a little little scary right now. But I'm still hopeful up until November. So we got to get it together. (laughs) Local Democrats, come on. Let's do this. Got to get our local policy together. You can't see a world in which, because historically the trends seem uh, clear. Usually the party that holds the White House loses pretty big in the midterms. You can't see a world where in which that isn't utterly disastrous? Oh, no, I can see a world where it would just be absolutely, totally disastrous. Like, I think it would be a fucking disaster. Like, would we live? Yes. Would the sun come up? Yes. But, like, for marginalized communities, their lives 
will not improve in the way that, I mean, in blue states, it won't be, like, as bad with a Republican-controlled House because, like, you still have, like, your your state Congress, your state ledge, rather, and, you know, your local governments are going to make, like, a bigger impact than, like, Congress in blue states. But in red states, where there are so many queer people and there are so many already marginalized LGBTQIA plus people, it's a disaster, because they already have red state ledges. So, like, a federal oversight on those people so that they have someone that they can call on is so important. So I do think that it would be a disaster if we lost the House and the Senate. And I think that we've accomplished so much. I know that a lot of people don't feel like it's enough, but I feel like we have accomplished so much, and there's so much more to do. And I just hope that we can work together on the left to get more people to turn out. Because it still baffles me that the presidential election of 2020, like, it had the highest voter turnout in such a long time. And it was still like, what was it? It was like 80 million votes to 75 million votes. So that's 80 plus 75, that's like 155. And there's like 330 million people. That's still like, is like around, it's like a little bit above 50%. But it's like, how can we invigorate that other 50% of people that just do not turn out to vote. And I think it really comes down to education because I feel like we don't have civic, civil, like, education. So, like, people don't know how much local and state governments affect them. And they don't understand how much Congress affects, like, their local congressional representative affects them. Like, they just don't get it. And that's like a failure of schools. And it's also a failure by design by Republicans to get us in this. Because when we've divested from education, we've divested from infrastructure, divested from healthcare, it makes people sick and fucking stupid. And not that everyone's sick and stupid, but it's like, it keeps the people in power in power because people aren't empowered with the knowledge that they need to make better choices for themselves. So we got to get ahead of it. I don't know exactly how we're going to, but I do have faith and I do hope that we will. And I just really hope that we will and can. Let's end on this. One thing you talk about is your embrace of complexity and contradiction and that two things can be true at the same time. I'm going to quote you a little bit back to you. A few quotes that I kind of cherry picked together because I think they kind of fit into this theme. One is only in hindsight can I see that I achieved my dreams because of not in spite of all of the bumps in the road. Another is, I'm constantly trying to deepen my understanding of the world and acknowledge that good and bad can coexist and that we will never be able to just snap our fingers and put everything in its place. And finally, I wanted to show people that joy can live beside sorrow and that sadness doesn't invalidate your right to experience happiness. So I throw those quotes from you at you and, and I invite you to sort of hold forth if you're open to it. Yeah, I mean, one, like, Ew, why am I such a good writer? And two, <laughs> um, <laughs> and two, it's like, I think especially the last piece I need to hear, I put so much pressure on myself to try to heal the world. And if, if the worst does happen at midterms, it's like, I'm still allowed to experience joy, like in the face of sadness and darkness. It's just like so disappointing because it's just so disappointing when I think about like the midterm thing. And it's like, I'll personally be okay. I'll be okay. I got money. I got a house. I'm like, I'll be fine. It's like all of the like young and older queer people who won't and who will lose access to healthcare, who their lives become harder because of their elected leadership. And that's who I fight so hard for. So yeah, I think it's complex. There's a duality. I'm going to keep up the fight and I'll keep acknowledging those truths as I move forth in the world. You applied it to politics there, but in your own life, 
aside from politics, sort of your internal politics, your internal parts, your internal family systems and the different parts of JVN that are within your own mind. There's the JVN we see on Netflix and then there's the JVN who gets really sad. It seems like coming to an understanding that a lot of stuff can be happening at the same time. The full catastrophe can be playing out and it all can be okay. That seems like a very important conclusion for you. Yeah, I mean... I don't know if the conclusion that is like there can be a catastrophe and it can be okay at the same time. I think that it's like there can be a catastrophe and I can find peace at the same time. I don't know if I would like necessarily like label like a catastrophe as like and it's okay. It's like I think it's like you can find peace even if there's something really difficult going on or find some sort of acceptance in something even in the face of a catastrophe is more clear for me anyway. Point well taken. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Anything you want to touch on that I didn't give you an opportunity to touch on? Just like, how do you deal with waking up that gorgeous? As a heterosexual man, like, I don't, you know, it's like, it's like, I, like, I just, it's like, it's like, just like your hair, you know, it's like your hair is so pretty, it's like, so pretty. And it's like, like your beard, it's like, you're just like so symmetrical. You know, it's fine that you didn't ask those things. Like, how did you get so symmetrical? Like, how do you get so perfect? Like, why your teeth are so cute? I don't know. It's like, I floss. I, you know, I do, I'm really into skincare. No, I, I, I do think that as far as the book, I, I was really moved by, my experience about writing about the Sorry Karen chapter and kind of my relationship with my father. I was really candid about my relationship with my dad. And I think that's like what I think about hope. It's like, sometimes I wish, you know, my dad's a conservative man, has historically really voted Republican. And it's like, I wish that I could like move his dial like further left. But he always says, you know, it's like you've moved me from like a one to like a five. I might not be like a, you know, liberal, but I'm a lot, more over on the dial than I used to be. And I'm really proud of him that I let him like read that essay before I, you know, released it. Obviously, I didn't want him to feel like really taken off guard. But for anyone out there that's listening to this, it's having a a hard relationship with a family member who's voting for people that diametrically oppose your existence. That's a really hopeful chapter. And I hope that people feel empowered to keep having uncomfortable conversations with people in their family and that they can use some tools in that essay and people with their life. Because really, ultimately, what queer people need, what queer youth need, what queer people, young and old, need is for people that are allies to take these conversations into spaces that would be uncomfortable, to take these conversations to members of your family that it might not go over so smooth and be able to like have a calm, clear, loving conversation with them to hopefully move that dial. So I hope that people can take that from that essay and, and employ that in their life. That's incredibly important. I uh, salute the work you're doing. I love watching you on Netflix. I love talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Jonathan. As I told you, that was a fun one. Thank you as well to everybody who worked so hard on this show. Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Maria Wortel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. And we get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. One note before we go, I do want to do something here in support of an organization founded 
upon the breakthrough work of my friend, the world-renowned neuroscientist, Dr. Richard Davidson. He goes by Richie. Richie's cutting-edge work uses scientific principles to prove that meditation can actually train our minds and change our minds to make us better, happier humans. The organization is called Healthy Minds Innovations, and the mission is to create a kinder, wiser, and more compassionate world through the cultivation of well-being. And they are looking for a leader who will set a clear vision for the next chapter and maximize the global impact of the organization. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to hminnovations.org. You can go to hminnovations.org. We'll see you all on Wednesday for uh, part two of our week-long series on hope. We're going to talk to a scientist, Jacqueline Mattis, who has researched evidence-based ways for cultivating hope as a skill. And don't forget, this is just week two of our four-week mental health reboot series that runs all the way through May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we've got week-long series coming up on grief and also on trauma. So a lot more to come. I hope you stick with us for the whole thing. We'll see you on Wednesday for Jacqueline Mattis. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.